Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. My friend Steve Braverman had brought me along, and now I'm listening to an orchestra pound out a Led Zeppelin tune. Complete with light show and images, this is Rock Mania Live, a pet project of Steve's and today's guest. During breaks, Steve introduces me to Tommy Tallarico, video game composer, He's worked on over 300 games, creator and producer of 11-year World Touring Video Games Live show. Tommy has hosted and co-produced three video game TV shows. He's the founder of the nonprofit Game Audio Network Guild. He holds five World Guinness Records. We'll talk about that. And he recently did a TED Talk about the influence of video games on art and creativity. Yep, he's performed live before 100,000 people. He is, of course, a heavy believer in the power of positive thinking and, oh yes, Tommy said he consistently works hard to fully enjoy the fruits of his labors, and he loves cars. One last bit of information. Tommy's a super sleeper, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But before we get into cars, before we get into anything else, I want to welcome Tommy Tallarico to the show. Good morning, Tommy. Oh, boy, I sound busy. Jeez. Boy, (laughs) I got to go. Tommy, (laughs) as as a matter of fact, it took me about 35 minutes just to read your bio. I've left most of the stuff out. It's just like, holy cow. And before we get into cars, let's talk a bit about what you do in the music business. How did you get started in the music industry? Yeah, well, uh, you know, my whole life growing up, I'm 49 years old now, and my whole life, my two greatest loves growing up were always video games and music. You know, in the late 70s, when video games were, you know, really starting to you know, have a big impact and video arcades and stuff like that. You know, my generation, we were the first ones to start. You know, I was 10 years old when Star Wars came out and uh-huh. Tron and Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, yeah. all that stuff right in that era. Yeah. And um and so video games and music were always my two greatest loves um i have a famous uh cousin that's why i was so involved and interested in music uh, my cousin is steven tyler from aerosmith sure. his real name is steven tellerico so uh-huh. so i would go to rock concerts sit at the side of the stage and watch steven do his magic and say oh that's what i want to be when i grow up that looks like a cool job he's having fun um so always video games and music um, but when I turned 21, I, uh, I, I grew up in Massachusetts and I uh, literally left my parents crying on the doorstep. I was the oldest child um, and I just got my little two seater car all by myself with no money, uh, no job, no place to stay, no friends out there, nothing. And I just drove to California because, you know, that's what you do. If you Everybody want to be does. That's what, if you want to be in the entertainment industry, that's what you do. God, that's funny and, because my parents were crying with joy when I left home, but that was a oh, different, okay. different <laughs> okay. for you. Fair enough. Uh, so, um, so I, you know, when I first place I got to when I, you know, you go to L.A. and Hollywood, that's yeah. where you go. And this was 1990. So, um if anyone was around back then in 1990, it was kind of a seedy place, uh, Hollywood Boulevard and all that back then. So I showed up the first day there and I'm looking up at the Capitol Records building. I'm on Hollywood and Vine. 
and I'm literally like in tears. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? This this place sucks. This isn't what it looks like on television. Uh-huh. I've been bamboozled. What, what's going on? <laughs> and you know, I literally stopped a homeless person on the street and I asked them, you know, well, the only other thing I knew in California was Disneyland. And so I'm like, well, where's Disneyland? Where's Mickey Mouse live? I figure that must be a, a, a safe and fun place, uh-huh. the happiest place on earth. I got to go uh-huh. there. And he pointed me down to Orange County, which is, you know, about 20, 30 minutes south. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, OK, well, I'm still close enough to the music and, and entertainment industry, but I'll, I'll go down to, you know, to Anaheim and check that out. So I'm driving into Orange County, and of course, when you drive into Orange County, you see the palm trees and the pretty girls and the beaches and the fancy cars, and you're like, "Oh, okay, I'm home. this is this is what <laughs> I envision California to be like." I said, "Okay, I'll set up shop here." So I picked up a newspaper first day out here, and I and I saw a job for selling keyboards at a guitar center hmm. in Orange County. So hmm. I I literally drove right there. And I asked to speak to the manager, and uh, I said, oh, is the manager here? Oh, yeah, he's back here. And I had the ad in my hand, and I walked right into his office, and I said, hey, I, I want this job. I want this job. Well, you know, we need to set up an interview and this and that. I said, no, no, you don't need to interview. I'll sell you anything. I'll sell you this. What do you need to sell? I'm mm-hmm. pulling, taking things off his desk, so here, I'll sell you this. What do you want? How much, you know? And, and he's kind of laughing. And uh, I said, look, I just got here. Um, and I, I really want a job. And, and, and so he hired me on the spot. He goes, okay. He's laughing. He goes, okay, you can start tomorrow. Wow. Great. Great. So I was actually homeless for the first three weeks cause I didn't have any money. I, I had a $500 credit card when I left Massachusetts and I pretty much used all of that on gas. Mm. I slept in my car the whole way here. Mm. Um, and then I bought like a loaf of bread and peanut butter and jelly. And I literally lived off that for, you know, the, the two, the week or two that it took me to get out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I would do. I'd buy peanut butter, jelly and, and, and sandwich bread. And I had that, you know, two, three times a day. The musician's and, diet, right? That's it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was homeless and I was sleeping under the pier at Huntington Beach because I'm thinking to myself, well, geez, if you're going to be homeless... I mean, people pay $10, 20000000 million for this beachfront property here. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, sure. so, you know, I'm getting it for free. I'd sleep under the pier and I'd take <laughs> showers on the beach and, uh, you know, and park my car, you know, down the street at a, at a you know, a store or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't have to pay for the beach parking. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so that's how I lived for the first three weeks. But that first day I get the job and he says, you start tomorrow. So now I'm my second day in California. And I had three T-shirts with me that I brought because I had a little two-seater car. And one of the T-shirts was an obscure Japanese video game system that hadn't even come out in America yet. And back then, no one had video game T-shirts. It's not like now. Now you can go into Hot Topic, Target, Walmart. They're all over the place. Go order them online. Uh Back then, they were – no one had And – I wear this T-shirt the first day of, of work. Now it's, it's my second day in California. Well, lo and behold, the very first person who walked in, the first customer I waited on, literally the third conversation I had in California, the first was the homeless guy, the second was the manager mm-hmm. of the store, and now this third guy. And he worked for Richard Branson, 
And they were starting the Virgin Video Game Company right down the street. And he saw my T-shirt and he was like, oh, my gosh, where'd you get that? And he's like, do you know about video games? I'm like, I know everything about video games. <laughs> and uh, proceeded to download 21 years of video game information on this poor guy. And uh, he's like, well, geez, do you want a job? And I'm like, yes, doing what? And he said, uh, well, just play our video games. And tell us what. Yes, doing what? what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. What, what do you want me to do? Uh, he says, "Well, you play our video games and tell us what you think of them and how we can improve them and this and that. And you know, we'll pay you six bucks an hour. And and minimum wage was four dollars at the time, and I was making four dollars at the music store. Hmm. Now, I had worked out the night before that in my, you know, because what are you going to do when you're homeless on a beach? I had grabbed a newspaper. That's how I got the job. So I was looking through the newspaper. What was rent? How much was gas? So I figured out how much money I would need to make per hour in order to stay in California. And that number was $10 an hour. Mm. And so, geez, I just got offered uh, a $6 an hour job. So I said, yes, I take it. And so what I did is I would work at Virgin from eight o'clock in the morning till four in the afternoon. And then as soon as I got off, I'd go to the music store from, you know, four 30 to close. And then I'd work at the music store all day, Saturday and all day Sunday. So I was working 80 hours, two full-time jobs, but one was $6 an hour. One was $4 an hour. If Bingo. I put them together, Bingo. boom, there's my 10 bucks. And by the way, what a fantastic way to meet people in the music industry mm -hmm. by working at a music store. I mean, the, the, the fact that I met this video game guy, the first person was, was incredible, right? So, um, I'm so and, tempted to stop you and ask you who the fourth person was that you met. Right, well, uh, that, oh, actually, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly. The fourth person I met was the vice president of Virgin, who was the vice president of this uh, company. His name is, D, D, uh, sorry, uh, Dr. Stephen Clark Wilson, hmm. and I was just with him a couple weeks ago. In fact, when we played in Seattle, because he, he he lives up in Seattle, and he was a, he was the vice president, and he was the guy who I would bug every single day for like six months straight. I would bug him, hey, whenever you need music for these video games, let me know. I'll do it for free. And if you don't like it, you don't have to use it. But please give me the opportunity. And the great thing, the other great thing about working in a music store, especially when you're homeless, because, again, I was homeless. So mm -hmm. I didn't have a place to stay to go to. So why wouldn't I work 80 hours a week? I didn't have any friends. Why wouldn't I meet people and network with as many people as sure. possible? Brilliant. So working, working 80 hours a week was not I, I, I couldn't go home and watch television. You know, I could, mm -hmm. I had no means to be lazy and I was so excited to be out there. It's like, you know, like one day, uh, I forget what holiday it was. It was like president's day or something. And both places were closed and I'm like, what, what the hell am I going to do? And, mm -hmm. and I just, I just drove down the beach and just walked along the beach and explored the ocean and the rocks. And I'm like, Oh my God, this place is amazing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this, the vice president, I'd bug him every single day. Well, about six months later they were working on the original prince of persia in-house and they needed music for it and he said hey do you want to do the music you know you're always bugging me but yeah the other great part sorry about working in a music store is that not only do you meet everyone but i have millions of dollars of gear at my fingertips mm -hmm. at any point mm -hmm. so after close 
I would always sit there and I'd make demo tapes and then I'd bring you with millions of dollars of equipment and mm. bring them in the next day uh, to the vice president. And say, hey, check out this tune I wrote last night. Wouldn't this sound good in a video game? You know, and he'd listen to it and everything. And so when that opportunity came up, they, you know, he said, uh, he says, look, here's a game. If you want to give it a shot, let's give it a shot. And I wrote the entire game in four days. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I learned how to do it from the programmers. I would always be asking the programmers in-house, how do you do music for video games? How can I, you know, figure out ways to do it and, and you know, figure out the technology? Because I'm not a programmer, so how can I do this? And I learned along the way. I was just learning by asking questions how to get there. And then anyway, I do the game and it ended up winning an award for best music of the year. And they said, OK, we're going to make you the audio guy now, the full time music person. But we need you to quit that other job so that you can just dedicate it to this. And they offered me like twelve dollars an hour. Um, so so it's like, oh, now I'm making more money, but working half the time. And now I could afford to, you know, uh, get a get a, a place in this so anyway, they um, and so that's how I started uh, in the game industry. And of course, I worked at Virgin for four years um, and I won Best Music of the Year Award four years in a row. And by the time I had left, I was making about one hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, again, this is the mid 90s and I'm 24 years old, mm. you know, like that is the dream come true. But I left because every other company was trying to get me to go work for them. They said, leave Virgin and go work for it. So I said, well, geez, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna set up my own company and I'll go work for all these people who want me. <laughs> you know, there's a but, message, I've got to stop you, Tommy. There's a message there for self, to be self-employed, isn't there? Absolutely, and, and you know, I wouldn't have been able to do it on my own if I just went out there the first time and right. did it. The fact that, you know, that you're in the house and you can learn all these things and get these opportunities and then say, well, geez, I, I can do this on my own and mm -hmm. I can do it, you know, bigger and better or whatever. Uh, but, but yeah, having that opportunity to see how the system works, to, to be, you know, to be a part of the game industry and to see how it worked from just being an employee was important too. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, but that's, so, you know, that's the entrepreneurship, though. That's that's the thing. And, you know, it's funny because people will come up to me and they say, oh, geez, you're so lucky. And I tell mm -hmm. you, I hate that word. Yep. And, and, and all of the most successful people I know hate that word as well, too, mm -hmm. because it's so it, it's it, it's an insulting term to me mm -hmm. to say, oh, you were lucky that that guy walked in the store that day. That is such utter crap mm -hmm. um you know was it lucky that i that i suffered and i left my parents crying i cried myself to sleep every night the day i left my parents 21 years old was it lucky that i you know had to sleep on a beach that i was homeless and scared every day mm -hmm. was it lucky that i walked into that uh you know that that room uh of the manager of the guitar center to, and, and basically forced him at gunpoint to give me a job. <laughs> well, not, not at gunpoint, forced him via guilt to right. get to give me a job there. You know, at four dollars an hour. Uh -huh. At four bucks an hour, working eighty hours a week. Was it lucky? It's such a bad. I, I, I just hate when people say you're lucky. So I won't. Know? I won't use the L word on this next question. But you had said a little bit earlier that your famous cousin, Steve Steve Tyler, did yeah. did that relationship help you, hurt you, what? what? Yeah. No. You know, it's 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 a great question because 
you know, once I made it big, I had kind of uh, lost touch because, you know, he, he's 20 years older than me. Mm-hmm. So so when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, 12 years old, you know, he was like, you know, rock star Steven. But then we'd, we'd see him at, you know, picnics and you know summer picnics and things. Um, but, you know, so we didn't really have a relationship that was more than, oh, I was just, you know, again, I was, I was 12 and he was, you know, 32 and uh-huh. he was touring. And, and that was a time kind of the late seventies, early eighties was kind of his hazed out drug years as well. So there wasn't a, you know, we didn't have like a connection, uh, growing up. And then when I had moved out to California, uh, I never wanted to call him once. I never wanted you know, like his help for for anything, because I wanted to do it on my own. And I didn't want to be that relative, you know, oh, can you help me out? Can you introduce me to some people with record companies? You know, it's like, I, I didn't want to be that person. Mm-hmm. And so after I had made it kind of big and started my own companies and all these things and started to come out with albums and this and that, we then caught up again, in like, you know, the mid 90s. And I had come out with a couple of albums, and I just finished a uh, James Bond uh, video game, and the the soundtrack album was released, uh, and my albums were out on Capitol Records and the whole thing. And so I had met him again after, like, not seeing him for, like, about, you know, uh, probably, you know, 20 years, 15 years. And now we were both adults. And, and so I had given him my CD, and my business card, I said, hey, Steven, check it out. And he was just blown away. He was just like, are you kidding? Like, why didn't you call me? Why did I, where are you, where, where have you been? What, you know? And, and and he called me about a week later after that, too. And we had like an hour long conversation and he just couldn't believe it that, you know, like how proud he was of me that I had done all this on my own and this and that. So since then, over the last 20 years now, um, we become, you know, much closer and we text each other all the time. Hey, Steven, I'm in, uh, you know, I'm playing the Hollywood Bowl tonight. Remember when you played the Hollywood Bowl? <laughs> so it's kind of, it's kind of. Tommy, kinda tell me, is that when you knew, uh, when your relationship changed with your, your cousin, is that when you knew you'd hit the big time? Uh, no, no, not, not really. I mean, for me, the big time, cause like, I think. As you progress through life, you're hitting the big time mm-hmm. is always like your next objective. Like you never really feel like like like, like for, so for me, hitting the big time was was getting that job for twenty four thousand dollars a year being paid to do music. That to me was hitting the big time. You know, for me, like that was my ultimate goal in life for to actually be a professional musician and composer, not somebody who just played guitar in a club every couple of weeks in a band and made 50 bucks. I'm talking about being a professional composer, songwriter, mu- musician. That was like my ultimate goal since I was a kid. So when I hit that, that to me was making it big. And to be honest with you, not to leave this phone conversation, but uh-huh. of course I know it will because yeah. it's a great podcast and yeah. lots of people. But I do this for free. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are paying me a lot of money to do it. But the reality is, is that this, you know, I would still do it for twenty four thousand a year. I figured when when that happened, boom. And so for me, you know, making it big. That then 
Then what's the next goal? Then the goal is I want to put out my own album. Boom. And then you climb that mountain and you say, well, what's the next goal? Well, I want to put on a live show and, and tour the world and boom, you do that. And so like the, the, the challenge for me is always like the fun part. It's like climbing that mountain. Okay. What's the top of the mountain? I want to be a professional composer. And then you climb the mountain and, and you say the goal is at the top and there's nothing, nothing that's going to stop me or get in my way. And along the way, you're going to have rocks coming down and hitting you and you're going to lose your gripping and you're going to fall back down another 10 yards and then people are going to try to stomp on you as they're climbing up the mountain but you never give up and you get to the top of that mountain no matter what and then once you get there you you have the confidence now that you can do anything hmm. and what happens is when you're looking at that you're when you're on the top of that mountain you look over the horizon and you see, oh, my God, look at all those mountains over there. And those are some bigger mountains. And those are some smaller ones. And those are look at all these different mountains. But I know that I just climbed this one. So I now know that I can climb any of those other bigger mountains and nothing is going to stop me and get in my way. And so once you get that initial confidence and you have that kind of mindset, mm -hmm. nothing stops you. When did you, and of course, when I had met you at Rock Mania Live, you and I were talking cars because we are obviously both rabid car enthusiasts. Were, yeah. you, were you interested in cars as a kid? A absolutely. I mean, you know, again, any, I think most uh, boys growing up in the 70s and 80s, had a picture of either a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or a Porsche on their wall at some point, yeah. right? Mostly Ferraris and Lamborghini. For me, it was the Magnum PI 308 GTSI, sure. right? That, yep. that was the poster that I had. Yep. And, I, and I also had the one, and you probably did as well, but that one where I forget what the poster said, but, you know, success, and it was somebody's garage, uh -huh. and they had a Lamborghini, a Porsche, a Ferrari, and you know in a McLaren or something whatever it was you know and it was like boom you know uh -huh. and it was like one of every supercar during the late 70s or uh -huh. early 80s uh -huh. and uh, you know and I had and those the posters I had on my wall were, were, were cars uh -huh. and then of course um, uh, Catherine Bach from uh, you know the uh, Daisy Duke sure and and, uh, and uh, uh, of course uh, the Charlie's Angels um, Farrah Fawcett what do you do you remember so somewhere along the line you were just like me intoxicated with automobiles but what was your first car what'd you buy first you bought that i purchased with my own money own money uh that would have been a, a crappy chevy nova okay uh, <laughs> with with rusted out the floorboards were rusted out yep. there was a literally a hole in the trunk uh, a rusted out hole in the trunk. Yep. Um, but I, and this is when I was like 17 years old. And then, but I put some cool mags on it. Uh, I, you know, um, 
and I got a you know ninety nine dollar Earl Scheid paint job. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I had a Chevy Vega that sounds like the identical car, the sister to what you had. <laughs> and uh, and it was you know it was kind of like a muscle car almost. Uh, you know I'd go down to the uh, Auto Zone or whatever the hell it was back then, and you know you'd get like the you know the super sport pedals, and the, you know you'd, you'd you'd change the knob on the shifter, and you you know you kind of it was all ghettoed out, but. Uh, but it was, you know, it was mine. I was, it was customized, and it was, it was uh, the car. And then, uh, in the uh, in the late '80s, uh, when the or mid to late '80s, when the Fiero came out with the the Pontiac Fiero, and they had they had a formula version which had like a whale tail and some you know ground effects and stuff. That was the very first new car I bought. That was the that was the first new car where I actually went to a dealership and, and bought the car because to me that was the closest thing I was ever going to get to a Ferrari at that point. At you know? that point, so what was your first? Tell me what was your first exotic car? And I know you've had a bunch of cars. We we talked about this at length. But what was your first exotic, or what you consider to be an exotic? Yeah. So uh, so when I left Virgin in uh, it was 1994 when I had left Virgin. And in 19, and so when I had left and started my own company, I had about $2 million in contracts in my back pocket. And so I moved my family out to California because they were going to help me run my company. So my dad was my CFO and my brother was, you know, so, uh, so I had everybody, uh, and they're still out here today. And, and, and they, um, and so they were helping me because who could you trust more than your family? Sure. So the first thing I bought was a, a presidential, uh, the Rolex President Gold. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing I bought was that year was in '94. Uh, I bought the, uh, the it was a '95 uh, the Ferrari uh, uh, 348. Mm. Spider, mm -hmm. Spider, the convertible had just come out in '94 and '95. They only made it those two years, and it was yellow with uh, black interior, black top. They made less than 200 of them in yellow. And uh, and I still have that car to this day. I can't get rid of it because mm -hmm. uh, it right. means so much to me. And I've, sure. I've actually, I've put over 100,000 miles on that car. And, and because it, I'm not one of these exotic car guys, and I've met a lot of them. You know, you meet a lot of, you know, kind of, especially living in Orange County in mm -hmm. California, you meet a lot of these rich guys who, I mean, they appreciate cars, but they never drive their exotics. They maybe drive them once on the weekend because during the week they're in their BMWs or Mercedes or Bentley, whatever it is, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not one of those guys. I I took what Enzo Ferrari said to heart, and I drive that car every single day. I don't have another car. All of the cars that I have are only exotics. I don't have a daily driver. I don't have... You know, and, and, and my wife hates me because, um, you know, hey, we're going to go to Whole Foods or we're going grocery shopping today. She knows that what that means is she's going to have to have groceries piled all over her because, yep. <laughs> because I'm taking yep. the Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm taking the two seater and, the, and then there's, you know, you can fit about five bags in the front trunk, but, yeah. you know, the rest of them are going on your lap. But, um, and that, and so that's, so I drive the heck out of them. So yeah, that 95, I still have it uh -huh. and, uh, and I love it to death. 
I've, se- I've seen it. It's a great car. I was sitting there, and I had a 348 uh, coupe, and I was yeah. my second Ferrari, I think. And I, I just love that little car. And sometimes they're tough to get rid of, but 100,000 miles, I'm imagining your dealer just loves you. Well, it, it, what's funny is is that I, um, I I recently upgraded it because it was it was one uh, you know I my I I bought a four five eight about two years ago uh-huh. and I had put like over fifty thousand dollars of extra carbon fiber like I did the whole engine bay like the specialities you know yeah. and and I put a bunch of you know, I even had carbon fiber exhaust tips, which are really rare. And I, you know, so, and it had a bunch of carbon fiber to begin with, but I, it, so it's all red with black, it, even the, and it's a two-tone because the top is kind of this brushed black aluminum, which yeah, is I've really, it's beautiful really car. neat, a gunmetal kind of thing with the wheels that are all yeah, gunmetal yeah. as well. And, and so, go ahead, Tom. Uh, and, and so I kind of, you know, took the yellow one off the road for the last couple of years and I'm seeing it sitting in my, uh, garage feeling guilty and then you flat spotting on the tires and, and I hadn't driven it in a while so I, I took it in and I just I said you know what I'm going to restore it and it's probably going to cost me more than the car is worth right now uh, to restore it but you know I had the you know, I, I, I put it about 20, 25 grand into it, mm-hmm. but I, uh, I had it repainted, re-chrome the wheels, uh, put in a bunch of carbon fiber in the engine bay, which it didn't originally have. So I'm, I, again, I'm not a, I'm not a, cause there's some Ferrari guys out there who would just hate me for saying any of that. What you changed the, you changed it from the factory. Now I don't go crazy and put like ground effects and all that kind of, you know, and I always keep the original wheels. I don't, I don't put on like freaky wheels or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. But what I'll do is, you know, I'll, you know, upgrade what's already there to a different material. I don't have any problem doing that. Mm-hmm. So if, if the air cover was an ugly black plastic and now it's in carbon fiber, mm-hmm. whatever. If, if the shift knob now is a cool carbon fiber with the Ferrari logo on it, then I'm cool with that, sure. you know, uh, or the kick panels or whatever. And, you know, Tommy, I've always wanted – finally, I get a chance to ask this question, a serious question. As a rock star, are you required by law to own an exotic car? Um, I, you know, they, in the, the, yeah, it's a club requirement in the contract. You can't can't be in the club, uh, unless you're not, you know, you know, what's interesting though, to me, Dave, is that, you know, I don't, I I always tell people, you know, never have like a materialistic goal necessarily, you know, like, like your goal in life shouldn't be, um, you know, to get stuff. You need the path in order to get. Now, once you once once you've made it, then you can have set those types of goals. Sure. But on your way there, you know, the the, the most important things, uh, you know, I think in a in, in in a career is is having passion for what you do. Right. Mm-hmm. The money will follow, and you could be good at whatever your passion is. You know, you don't have to be a musician to, to, to own an exotic car or whatever. You, you could be a cook, let's say. Well, let's say you loved cooking and that was your passion. Mm-hmm. Now, you could be 
working at McDonald's and maybe that's where you start and you work your way up to Denny's and then you go up to up the chain and up the chain and up the chain. Right. You could be a cook and work at McDonald's, but you could also be a cook and own a three-star Michelin restaurant, have your own TV show yeah. and, and, and put out videos and books, cooking books and, and this and that and, and still be worth tens of millions of dollars. You so, could be an automotive journalist slash podcaster and get people like Tommy Tallarico to come on the show. Uh, I don't know if there's a lot of money in that. Case. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, you know what? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. But look at the show Top Gear, right? Oh, yeah. You're, you're doing a version of Top Gear, you know? So, yeah. So, you know, there's whatever your passion is, whether it's photography or gardening or whatever it is, that's what I always tell young people. Look, make a list of all the things in life that you love, not even that you love doing, but that you love. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's say your passions, uh, baseball, for example. Now, you don't have to be Derek Jeter in order to say, oh, well, I better cross that one off my list because I don't have the skills like Derek Jeter. Oh, oh, hold on a second. If you love baseball and that's what you're passionate about, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different job opportunities within baseball right the within even i'm just talking major league baseball right now maybe you're a pr guy maybe you're an attorney maybe you're an agent maybe you're uh you know uh you, you work in the clubhouse maybe you're you know there's so many different you know things to do maybe you're driving the bus for the guys because you you just love it so much you want to be near it whatever it is you know write down those things because once you're passionate about something the success will follow because you're doing something that you love doing. The money follows later, you know, because you're going to keep because you're doing it out of passion, not for a paycheck, you know. You know, yeah, and you know, Tommy, I have to stop you too because not just certainly not just music, and of course, music I know is a, a huge part of your life. But I've been to your home. You and I kicked that place around for a long time, and you enjoy a lot of stuff. Vinegars, for instance, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm so I'm a hundred percent Italian, which is again, you know, why I've mostly owned Italian sports cars. Ferrari is my favorite. Um, I'd put Lamborghini. Uh, actually, I'd put p probably Pagani second, Lamborghini third. Um, but you know, so I'm a hundred percent Italian. All four of my grandparents came from Italy. They came to this country not speaking the language. Uh, you know, wanting to make a better life for my parents and, and in essence, me as well and generations to come. They sacrificed everything they had. I mean, it's easy for me to, to you know, have a great story about going from one coast to the other and being homeless. But for them, they left a country, left everything they've ever knew, known, and they didn't even speak the language. I mean, unbelievable, right? And this is like mm -hmm. in, in the 19 teens, right? You know, World War One is going on. I mean, this is this is I can't even fathom that. But any anyway, and, and they were the ones who always told me and it wasn't as a guilt trip. It was more like, um, hey, we just want you to be aware that we left everything we had for you. So don't. You know, so make sure you take advantage of the th things that America has, the opportunities that America has. And again, it wasn't a guilt thing. It was just it was a teaching moment. And they, they I always thought of that growing up and and appreciated that. But so for me, uh, you know, uh, 
being a hundred percent Italian, you know, you get involved in that, in that kind of passion. My passion the is culture, uh, the culture and the people and the food and the, you know, vinegars. So uh-huh. I, well, that's the thing is that I've, I've never drank alcohol my entire life. I've never tried it. I don't know what beer tastes like. It smells awful. Um, I don't know. And even wine, I've never, ever tasted alcohol my entire life. It was just, it was never in my, I never had the uh, curiosity. Okay. Uh, I was, I was always playing an instrument or playing the piano. And then in high school, I kind of became like the designated driver. And that was, I was kind of proud of that. I'm like, hi, and and look at all my friends acting like idiots. Like Mm -hmm. I never, I never thought that that it never seemed fun to me. So I never, you know, got into it, which is a big kind of a, if if you're Italian, it's like you're into wine and Tuscan wines and everything. And so, but, but when I went to, uh, but I was always into vinegar. And then when I went to Italy and I went to Marinello, uh, to the Ferrari factory and of course Modena is right there. Right where where Enzo was born and Luciano Pavarotti was born and and then you and Pagani's there and Lamborghini's down the road and you go there and then it's the vinegar is like you know that's where it all comes from the balsamic vinegar and once I read the history about and I won't bore anyone with it now but but there's but there's you know 99% of the vinegars on the market are actually just fake and they and it's just watered down wine vinegar with some added grape juice and and coloring and caramel mm. um i'm going through my cabinet when we get off the air by the way yeah yeah you'll be very disappointed <laughs> the, the the true balsamic uh is is only made in italy um in the region uh, there's two regions actually but modena is the more popular region that we all know um and the other one's uh, Riccio Emilio, but the and and so in that uh, and it basically it's it's grapes that are cooked, um, and a lot of people think uh, balsamic is the purple grape, but it's not. It's actually the white grape, hmm. um, even though it has that dark uh, dark thing. But real balsamic is just one ingredient. Grape. They they pick the grapes at the right time. They cook them for uh, 24 hours and it creates the grape must which is like an amber color and then it sits in a set of barrels and every every year the mother barrel is the biggest barrel that's where the must starts and then every year you take uh, a bit of that and you put it in the next barrel down yeah you told me about this it was such an interesting process and then only after you know 12 13 years can is it then ready in that final barrel and the way they come up with the different flavors of balsamic is the different types of wood they use that it sits in so if you have five barrels in your set and sometimes there's seven eight or nine barrels a cherry wood for example has a more of a of a sweet taste a balsamic has a different uh, a balsa wood has a different taste uh, you know so all the an oak uh, all the different tastes and where that is set in the in the set. So if you have a cherry wood as your mother big barrel, it's sitting in there the longest. It's going to be sweeter as it goes progresses down the line. And, so all these different things. And Tommy, I got to tell you, we could probably spend we could do a podcast on <laughs> balsamic, but but I I, I have to move Moving on about. On. I, like I said, I've been to your house. We walked around for hours, and you also collect a whole bunch more than just cars and vinegar movie paraphernalia, watches. Why do you collect this stuff? Why do you gravitate to the stuff you collect? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I, n- I never think of things that I collect like material objects as like, you know, you should you should your life shouldn't be focused on material things. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, to me, these material things like like the Ferrari, for example, or like, a you know, a, a fine watch, a Hublot, a Rolex, a Richard Mill, whatever to me. They they don't represent a physical thing, but they represent a, a an accomplishment to me. You know, mm-hmm. so like when a, I was a, a, re- kid, a reward. Yes, uh-huh. it, it, exactly. And so when I work really hard, or I do a big deal, or a big game, or a you know whatever, or a big show, I reward myself with you know, by purchasing something that I'm going to remind myself of this moment. So if I play two shows at the bird's nest, uh, you know, two years ago, I played uh, the bird's nest, the national Olympic stadium, Th- two shows sold out 30,000 people a night. And it was a big payday. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, you know, I said, what am I going to purchase for myself? that is going to remind me of this moment or remind me of this accomplishment and this and that. So that's, that's how I kind of view those things because, and then if those things ever go away, you know, uh, I, I still have the memory of, of the thing, but it's a reminder of this great moment in my life. Uh, and I'll always have the memory of it, but to kind of solidify it with kind of a, a materialistic object. Mm-hmm. So the material stuff, I always tell everyone all the time, look, you can take every single thing that I have away from me and put me homeless under that pier in Huntington Beach again. You can do that. I could go bankrupt tomorrow. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Within a couple of years, I'll have it all back. And I, 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 Tommy, it's so interesting you said that because I can't remember the podcast that I did or it was a blog post to something that I read that there are this group of people out there that could lose it all tomorrow and get it all back. And, and obviously you're one of them, you aspire to that. I want to ask you uh, just a couple more questions too. Um, when we talked earlier, you are of a group of people that are only one to 3% of the population, different circadian rhythms, upbeat, optimistic. You have a high tolerance for pain. I'm just reading this off of, out of my references. Okay. You are in the same league with Thomas Edison, Martha Stewart, Margaret Thatcher, Leonardo da Vinci, to name just a couple, because you are what's called diagnosed as a super sleeper. Did you know that? You did. Okay. Does this help you? First of all, what's a super sleeper? So, uh, and they're just like doing studies on this now. I mean, they're still like studying, you know, uh, folks to see, chemically what's happening and and you know health wise how is this possible and all this but uh, you know the normal average person needs about six to eight hours of of sleep a night now when I you do. think yeah, about I that do. yeah yeah there's there's 24 hours in a day and if eight of those hours um are sleeping that's about a third of your life right so you mm-hmm. spend one third of your entire existence on this planet uh, it, 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 comatose, you know, in, in, in sleeping, you know, mm-hmm. uh, recovering from the, you know, the energy and the day's activities and all that. Um, a super sleeper only needs half of that. So I can't sleep more than four hours 
even if you tried to force me to. I, I could work out all day long. I could be, you know, climbing mountains and, and you know, going like crazy. Uh, and I still, I get that four hours, maybe five hours, uh, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm really like crazed out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having that, only having four hours as opposed to eight, half the time. I mean, think about that. Mm-hmm. When you're 30 years old, you've slept a third of your life. You've slept 10 years when you're 30. By the time you're 60, you would have slept 20 years of your life, 20 years yeah. nonstop. Now, a person who's a super sleeper has half of that. So that means that by the time I'm 60, I would have had an extra 15 years, right? Oh, no, sorry, 10 years, 10 complete years, nonstop years of being able to do stuff that others couldn't because they're sleeping during that time. So, um, so yes. Does this help you or hurt you when you travel? You're you're all over the board internationally all the time. You've been to dozens and dozens and dozens of different countries. How's this help you when you uh, when you switch time zones? Oh, it's a complete godsend because, like you know, I can land in China and be on a completely opposite time zone, and and just you know, I'll just you know, I mean, I I make sure that I time it right. I don't I don't go into any international situation without planning ahead a few days. Mm-hmm. So so when I by the time I get there, you know, I'll make sure that my sleep time is from their midnight to four in the morning or five in the morning or whatever one in the morning till five. So I just I can just change my uh, change my stuff immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because everybody in my crew always comments on it because we will will you know you know will land and I'll be up in breakfast and everybody's like you know uh, everyone's like hit with jet lag oh, and, yeah. and I'm just like yeah well, I never sleep anyway so it's it's a it's a complete godsend. Yeah, I sure. I I so envy that I go from L.A. to New York. I swear to God, it takes me three days just to figure really? out oh, that. Yeah, well, it's just one of those things. Now yeah, you, know, you know the other thing though that I'll say too is that. I, I think part of this, uh, and I mean, they say it's genetic, um, uh, but again, they're still studying it all. But, but for me, the I love what I do so much. I'm so excited about every day mm-hmm. that I think that has a lot to do with it as well. I think if you absolutely love what you do every day, I mean, when I go to sleep at night, I'm like excited because I'm thinking about all the things I need to do the next day or to, to prepare for this and that. So my brain is always like going, it's, you know, and then the second I wake up, I'm not one of these guys where, you know, I wake up, so oh, I need my coffee and then oh, I got to get going. And like, I've never even had caffeine or coffee my whole life. I don't drink soda. I'm, I'm actually vegan. So I, that's another, you know, energy levels are always through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and eating a lot of, you know, protein that's not meat based and animal based. And, and so, you know, but when I get up, I'm like jumping out of bed. Like I'm like, you know, you know, okay, I'm going to work out first or maybe I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to get on a phone call with Europe or like I'm, I'm up and at, I'm ready, ready to go, ready to hit it because I'm excited about doing it. You unlike know? and unlike you, Tommy, I know where the snooze button is on my phone. And God, I need coffee in the morning. 
You know, I've never, I've, that's the other weird thing is I've, I've never had to set an alarm ever. So I can literally, before I go to sleep, I can say to myself, I'm going to wake up at 5, 10 a.m. And right at 5, 10 a.m., boom, I'm up. Okay. Now you're, you're, built in alarm you're married now. Does that drive your wife crazy? Uh, we, well, a lot of times we'll actually, uh, a lot of times we'll sometimes like sleep in different, you know, rooms uh -huh. because... Or, or like I'll hang out and then come to bed later because it, it is one of those things where it's like, you know, she can't, you know, I, I can't expect right. her to, to be up all night. So, you know, and then when she's ready to bed at nine at, at night, I'm still like, you know, I'm, I'm just to get my third wind at this point. And, and she's so, not, is she, I, 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 of course met your wife, but she's not a musician. No. no okay. Okay. I was going to say. All yeah. about animals. Yeah. And uh, does she go with you when you travel? Uh, well, she goes, let me see. She, I'll tell you some of the ones she's been to. Um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Brazil, Paris, uh, Barcelona, Spain, uh, uh, Dubai. But for some weird reason, she wasn't in Alabama last month when I went to that show. Jeez. She wasn't in, uh, she was in Grand Rapids, Michigan for those shows. So I don't know. It's just kind of weird how her schedule Des seems to Des always... <laughs> Des Moines is not high on her travel list. No, is no. that right? So, so, so basically, she comes to all the super cool ones. Hey, yeah, Tommy, yeah. you were invited to do a TED Talk. What was the purpose behind that? Uh, well, you know, my, one of my big goals in creating my show, Video Games Live, was I wanted to prove to the world how culturally significant and artistic video games had become. But I also wanted to help usher in a whole new generation of young people to appreciate, you know, the arts and appreciate symphonic and orchestral music. So... Uh, the you know video games get a a, a big a, a bad rap you know a lot of times from the mainstream media and certain organizations where it's like oh if you're a gamer then then you know you're a nerd and go outside and get a girlfriend and you're just eating you know Doritos and Mountain Dew and you're violent because you know when you play those violent games you're gonna go start shooting up schools and stuff you know so it's a real and and by the way there's zero correlation to that at all and so my my TED talk was actually to to disprove that video games cause violence because they don't and I show the graphs and the charts and it's very easy very simple to to blow that out of the water and you haven't really heard a lot about that lately because the the the, the evidence is so overwhelming um I'll, I'll just give you a quick thing really quick that i talk about in my talk but basically the 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 amount just in america if we were to take america because you know that's where all the gun violence is, yeah. is supposedly the worst it's where all the guns are Right, but even that's a misnomer because Venezuela and all those other places have much more gun violence than the U.S. But anyway, that being said, we're definitely in the top ten. Okay, fine. So, um, but the video gaming in America has gone up. If you look at a graph, mm -hmm. it has gone up uh, amazing, like you know, by three, four hundred times over the last 20, uh, 20 years, and the violence for that same age group, that same target audience has gone exactly in the opposite direction. So if you wanna make a correlation, you should say that the more people play video games, the less violent they are. Ah, because <laughs> okay, I, you know, I see your better, point. Uh, better, yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, and so, but, 
but that being said, so I wanted to kind of, you know, you know, get that out of the way at, at the beginning of the TED Talk. But the rest of the TED Talk is, in fact, video games, um, you know, inspire people to create not the other way, you know, it's not, they're not negative. They actually inspire people. Now I always say to people, look, it's all about being balanced. I'm not saying play 60 hours of video games a week. Like some folks are playing. Look, it's important to read. It's important to go outside. It's important to have networking and conversations face to face with people, get off social media. You don't have to be there all the time, you know, so I'm always about balance, but one of those balanced uh, things can be, you know, your entertainment and, mm -hmm. and, and doing something that you're passionate about and love, you know, video games, you know, do create amazing, um, you know, artistic outlets for people. And I go through all those in the, in the 17 minutes during the, uh, during the Ted talk. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really mind blowing. People don't realize the numbers. It's mind blowing. I mean, Twitch TV is, is, you know, it has 30 million people a day watching it for at least an hour and a half. Now, you might be saying to yourself or some of your viewers are like, what's Twitch TV? I've never heard of it. Exactly. Yeah, and what's it, uh, Twitch TV? <laughs> it's, 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 you're going to laugh when I say this, but this is how amazing people don't even realize how big this is. Twitch TV is a website where people go to watch other people play video games. And uh -huh. it is doing bigger numbers than any television network, any major network, ABC, NBC, CBS. W you know, we're getting moon landing numbers hmm. every single day. Wow. And it's just other people watching people play video games. It's unbelievable. That's why Amazon bought the company for like a billion dollars a couple years ago. You know, Tommy, I, I have got to ask you a question. You have obviously lived a rich and uh, uber successful life if you had to do it all over again if you could knowing what you know now knowing understanding who you are now if you could go back to that 21 year old kid that you were when you hit the huntington pier what would you what would you say to him what would you do differently well i wouldn't do anything differently not not a you know you know because even your mistakes that you make along the way you learn from them and that that gives you something right even every little negative thing or you know so it's easy to say oh i would have done that differently but but no i wouldn't because that negative thing that happened that negative experience made now makes me a stronger smarter better person mm -hmm. because i learned something from that right mm -hmm. so i wouldn't you know, so I wouldn't do anything differently. But what I would tell that person is, oh, boy, wait till you see what we have in store. You just keep <laughs> keep working hard because the payoffs are everything you ever wanted your entire life. And, and it's and it's going to be the most fun life ever. So keep your nose down, you know, keep keep your uh, nose to the grind and, and just work hard so you now, know never so, never be lazy so now as a 49 year old man successful in life everybody even tommy tallarico has aspirations what do you want to do next and how are you going to do it uh well i uh i have i i always have about five or six different irons in the fires in in, in different fires right yeah mm. and, and so you know i figure because that's the thing like i get it I, I actually understand 
why you know a lot of people will say oh you know that those one percenters or the you know the rich people they're miserable and they're unhappy and and uh you know they're the ones that you know uh you know i i get that you know why do these famous rock stars you know kill themselves or these entertainers kill themselves just had two more this year right Mm. um and the and the reason for that i understand it um I don't agree with it, but I understand it because once you've climbed all those mountains, like I said, it's like life gets boring, I think, to a lot of those people because they know they can succeed at anything they do, you know, and it's like, where's the challenge now? Hmm. Where's the the challenge is gone from, you know, from there? It's like, you know, like some musicians or singers might say, you know what? All I ever wanted to be was a rock star. I got that now. Mm-hmm. What, what what next? What am I going to, you know? And so the people who are unable to like reinvent themselves or to get into a different, you know, make some kind of parallel move within their career, you know, it, it's tough for them because they're bored with the world. They're bored with, they got every car they wanted. They got the house they wanted. They got the, every girl that they wanted, this and that. And, and now it's like, there's nothing left in life. And now they get depressed over it. So, um, so I, I, I kind of understand that, but, and so for me, I always have different parallel moves that I can make, um, different shows that I want to, you know what? And, and if I have seven, five, you know, five, six, seven different things going on in my hands and all those things, if one of them hits great, if none of them hit, I, I need, then I need five or six more, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that's been my kind of, my secret to, to always staying. And, and if you look through, through my, my bios, I know you did the, yeah, you was know, a my, 20, 25 minute read, but yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you'll notice that like, you know, the first, uh, over the last 30 years of my, of my career, the first 10 to 12 years were spent just writing video game music. That's all I did. Video game music and sound design. And that was it. And then I started a television show about video games. So working off that, you know, that that community I built in the video game world. Now I'm starting a video game TV show. And we did that for 12 years and it won an Emmy and it won a telly award for best, you know, entertainment cable uh, magazine, news magazine, and it was all about how to make video games and the people behind the making of video games. And then I did that. And then I started Video Games Live. It's a live touring symphony show of all the greatest video game music of all time. We do about 50, 60 performances a year. I've been doing that for the last 12, 15 years. And so now I have my hands into different things where I'm creating different shows that have nothing to do with video games. You mentioned Rock Mania Live. I have another show uh actually two other concept shows that i'm also trying to get off the ground um which again have nothing to do with video games i also have a video game hardware company so you know you have your sony or microsoft and and um uh, nintendo are the three big ones but there's a couple of you know lower ones out there that are from our, my childhood, and one in particular that I'm looking to purchase. And so maybe you know my next ten or fifteen years is going to be running a video game hardware manufacturing thing that I own. So always something fun. So it sounds to me like if the video game music industry goes away tomorrow, 
yep. you've got enough on your plate to keep you bouncing out of bed after four hours of sleep. Absolutely. I always have something in the back of my mind. It's not, You're never content with, oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. To me, that's scary. And I think that's what happens a lot of times to some of these folks is they don't have anything else except being a lead singer. And you, you, it's easy to say to somebody, what, they had the world. Why would they throw it all away? They're, what are they, you know, the idiots? I kind of get it. I get that, that, that headspace of if you don't have anything else, it, it, it becomes boring. I know that sounds stupid to say. And like, how no. can all those fancy mm-hmm. cars and houses and women be boring? Because after you do it and do it and do it and do it, it's like anything, right? You mm-hmm. have the best, uh, you know, you have the best meal of your life, uh, you know, every single day of your life by like the third month, you're going to be sick of it, right? So that's going to be, yeah, you've, you've hit on a whole bunch of stuff that I absolutely love, but that's going to be a big, huge takeaway from my Tommy Tallarico time this morning. And, and that's that always plan for the future. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't think the same because we live in a rapidly changing world, economically, culturally, maybe the things that made you successful uh, in the past aren't going to be the same things that they might uh, not be there. Yeah. They might not be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it, me and my uh, best friend, and we and he's a very successful guy he, he sold his company to Sony recently for 380 million dollars <laughs> and 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 we always we always joke about it um, because we always say look if all of this goes away tomorrow me and our wives you know the four of us will will just go to some deserted island and we'll start a coconut stand and we guarantee it'll be the best and greatest coconut stand the island has ever seen. <laughs> I love coconuts, by the way. I definitely want to get your address when you move to that island. No question. Listen, Tommy, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And it, it always amazes me when I talk to people that I sort of know or that have become more than an acquaintance how your passion sort of pushes you in so many different directions. I think it's wonderful. The takeaways from the show, too, are just like you said, be self-reliant, be entrepreneurial, think about tomorrow. Don't rest on your laurels. I mean, I've got a little checklist here of things I might edit and add at the end of the show. And be confident, too. That's, that's a, you know, there's a fine line between being confident and, like, arrogant, right? And, and my I wife points this across. out. Yeah, my wife points this out all the time that, uh, oh. <laughs> to me. <laughs> and, and I hope talking about this stuff, you know, when people ask you these questions, I hope I'm not coming across as arrogant, but confident, right? Because it, or, or aspir- inspirational, too, Tommy. Inspirational. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And because what I've learned is that every single human being on this planet, everybody has a great idea. Everybody has an amazing dream, right? Mm -hmm. The difference between the 1% of the people who have succeeded in that and everybody else on the planet is that that, those 1%, they all worked their butts off and they never took no for an answer and they had the confidence that they know they're going to do it no matter what, because whatever your goal is, somebody out there is willing to be working harder at it and faster at it. And every day of their moment in their life, they want it more than you. You have to be that person who wants it the most and never give up. And if you don't have that self-confidence, 
you're done. You might as well start playing the lottery because that's the only way you're going to, you're going to, you know, you have to, have to, have to have confidence in yourself and never give up no matter what. That's the biggest secret. Thank you, Tommy. And and I've got to, uh, just a couple more words I want to put in here real fast. I think you and I need to start something to eradicate the word lucky from the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, I know you're going to be traveling for a while now, but I hope when you come back to LA, I will drop you a line sometime the end of this year. I'd love to get together with you and just uh, shoot the breeze. And if people want to get in contact with you just to say hi or learn more about you or your life, uh, what's the best way to do that? Should they, um, should yeah, they go Facebook. to your face? Facebook page? Yeah, that'd be the one. Yep, Tommy Tellerico. Yep, I are on Facebook. Well, again, I want to thank you, Tommy Tellerico, for uh, coming on the show this morning. A very interesting show. Uh, more than anything, I appreciate the uh, the uh, the time that you've let me get a better handle on who, who you are, and I will definitely go out and make sure that I've got more irons in the fire than uh, than I have right now. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much, Tommy. We will, uh, we'll be back in touch with you soon. Thanks for your time. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you think. Go to drivewithdavepodcast.com and find out how to leave us a review on iTunes. I hope it's a good one, which we would very much appreciate. And there's a way to email us your questions, comments, and who you want on the show as well. All the episodes of Drive With Dave Podcast are on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and an overview of all the shows with links can be found on drivewithdave.com. Don't miss an episode. When you subscribe to the podcast, your device will be automatically updated with the new episodes and old ones will be removed after you've listened to them. No work required. And finally, I hope you also check out our bi-monthly newsletter, which will keep you in the know. And you can sign up at drivewithdave.com.